Like some days you wake mm-hmm. up and you're like, oh my God, I was good before I got here. And now I got yeah. here. Business starts, has started to decline in line with activity. But yeah, so you never, like any of us, you have self-reflection, you worry, you wonder if you're doing enough, if you're doing, making the right decisions. That for sure is a, a thing that weighs on you, particularly as CEO, because so many of the decisions are yours to make and yours alone, so to speak. That certainly can weigh on your psyche a little bit. But again, we have been, to say, more successful than most. And I think pretty happy with how things have played out over the last eight years. I think the big thing I would say is you're always going to make some mistakes along that. And I can point back over the eight years, a lot of mistakes that we've made. And I think that's okay. You have to be willing to take some risk, make some decisions. And when they don't work out, pivot relatively quickly. So I think we've been pretty good on that, that when we have made decisions that were bad, we've done the best we can to back up and take a different decision so they have as little impact as possible. You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Flipping the Barrel, a podcast where we interview leaders in the energy space to uncover and find out more about their career and life journeys. Today, we have Adam Anderson, the Chief Executive Officer at Innovex. Adam led the way in forming Innovex and continued to lead their efforts in bringing efficient and innovative solutions to the oil field. He also held that executive position at Team Oil Tools. Previously, Adam was with Baker Hughes from 2002 and served in senior management roles, including Vice President of the Western U.S. Division, President of Latin America, Vice President of the U.S. Completions Division, and Country Manager of Saudi Arabia. Wow, Adam has obviously traveled the world, which we'll get into that today in his story. And Adam began his career as an engineer with Well Dynamics, an oil and gas completions and production technology company. You might recognize Adam from the many headlines around his interface with North Face over the jackets they refused to give him as a Christmas present, as a nice gesture Adam was trying to do for his employees. Adam is a huge advocate for the energy industry, and we thank you for that, Adam. And thank you so much for joining us today. No, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. I followed y'all for a while, so it's good to join the show. Thanks, Adam. Well, let's get straight into your background. What was really impressive is that you're a fifth-generation oil and gas. And even though that was the background and you grew up around many folks in your family who were part of the industry, that wasn't necessarily something that you thought you were going to do in your future. Can you talk to us about the experiences you had growing up that prompt you into maybe deciding to go a different direction versus, hey, I want to be a sixth generation oil and gas? <laughs> yes. As you said, I grew up in an oil field family. My dad and my grandfather and many others were in the oil field. And I grew up more or less in Houston, Texas, and I went to school in Colorado, Colorado School of Mines. And when I left, I said, "Okay, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to come back to Texas, and I'm not going to get into the oil field." I think mostly because I was 18 and I wanted to, you know, find a way to carve my own path and do something different outside of the kind of what my family had done for a long time. But I think just somewhere after a little bit of time at School of Mines, I was drawn back into it. Took a petroleum engineering class and loved it, and kind of continued on from there. But I think growing up around the energy business, there was just a certain natural draw and appeal to come back to it. But at the same time, what I did see and lived through, and as we've all experienced in the industry, is probably the biggest challenge in the industry is just the volatility and cyclicality of the business. I can remember sitting around the breakfast table in the 80s and getting, at least from a distance, a feel into the challenges around that part of our business. I think it's really the only major bug in our business is that just rapid volatility that we experienced. So maybe that was something that I was trying to avoid initially, but overall, I'm blessed that I decided to get back into it. It has been a great run. I cannot complain. 
Adam, I think many college students can really relate to how you were in the very beginning. It was really hard time to decide what to do. And you were really no different, as you mentioned. And you ended up starting out in mechanical engineering and then switched to petroleum. And it wasn't long after that that you got your first job in the oil field. Many new grads today are facing the same dilemma, especially with the media pushing a no oil agenda. Comparing your college years to today's, would you have still decided to go with petroleum? And what kind of advice can you give to these college students? Like I was just at Sierra Week recently, and you know, there's a big climate activist standing out front. So, I mean, we can't get away from this. You know, what kind of advice can you give to those that are really wanting to study petroleum, but maybe feel that it's not going to be around? Yeah. So I think the reason why I did it is I barely made it as a mechanical engineer and I took a petroleum engineering class and loved it. And so consequently did much better in my petroleum engineering classes. It was probably as simple as that. There was not the same kind of challenges, let's say that around the view that society had on oil and gas back then that there is today. But I think what I would tell people, maybe two parts. One, I think the thing that is lost, and we'll talk about it more later, I'm I'm sure, the single biggest thing that I think is lost on people outside the industry, and I think unfortunately even people within the industry, is that what we do in oil and gas is good and virtuous and moral. And this is not something that is a extracurricular activity that humanity has tried to just decided we should do. This is something that is the pillar of modern society. And so what we do is beyond critical for enabling modernity. And so I think what I would tell people is if you choose to go down this path, it is fundamental and super important to human prosperity. So I think that part of it should inspire people to say, hey, what we do is good for the world. I think the second wonderful thing about our industry is relative to many industries, what we do every day, we get to play with really big toys, do cool things, drill wells that are, they use amazing technology to do things that were unbelievable. And 20 years ago, when I was in school, if we talked about drilling four-mile laterals, nobody would have believed that that was possible. So the progression we've seen in the way that we do things, the ability to get to play a part in that and drive the industry forward without as much government intervention and regulation and oversight as a lot of other industries, I think is very rewarding for the individual. So the opportunity to see problems, have the opportunity to fix those problems as an engineer, technical person, it's awesome. And I think maybe the last thing I would say about our industry, which I think is wonderful and underappreciated by those thinking about getting into it, is that this is an industry where there's broad-based prosperity across the people that participate in it. It's not just the CEOs that do well. If you are willing to work hard and you're capable, irrespective of where you come from, you can do extremely well in this business for yourself and for your family. Again, there's not many industries like that where you don't need some kind of PhD, you don't need some kind of degree. It's like if you can show up and prove yourself, People will respect that and you will do extremely well. And I think the combination of those three factors of what we do is super important. We get to work and help fix real problems and that the people that participate in it get rewarded based on their merits. I think that's a unique combination among other things Mm -hmm. that young think about doing. Today's episode is brought to you by Veril Energy Solutions. Did you know that Veril has been around since 1947? They're originally known for their drill bits, but through several acquisitions, investments, and rebranding, they now offer a diversified portfolio in drilling and completions. One of their core competencies is actually global manufacturing of consumable downhole products. They solve the industry supply chain problems. We've chosen to partner with Veril because they simply get it. They focus on their employees, they're committed to diversity and inclusion, and they know their only true sustainable advantage is their people. To learn more and stay up to date, please go to www.veril.com. Veril Energy Solutions, beyond technology, beyond normal.
Yes, thank you for sharing. Those are some very great key take points here. Everything that you mentioned is true. We've always mentioned too is for those looking into maybe thinking that the oil and gas industry isn't for them, you know, as young students to all the things that you've mentioned is there's still such a great career here. And even though they all think that there's going to be no more oil in a few years, it's going to take a long time and come build an amazing career here. Because to your point, there's so many benefits and you're part of the bigger picture of the world. And so thank you for sharing that. Those are very important. One thing I would add to it. Yeah, I I don't even think about that. Oil is not going away in any of our lifetimes. I can remember when I went to school, my grandfather said, hey, you should be a production. He was told to be a production engineer by his dad because he said when they lay down the last drilling rig, at least if you're in production, you still have stuff to do. That had to be 50 years ago that they were even thinking then that oil was in the later innings and is not. So I think the industry continues to prove how important it is to humanity. And I think we'll, that's awesome. not going to stop in the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. Yes. Let's talk about taking risks and betting on yourselves. And sometimes we're afraid of taking these big leaps of faith, whether it's a big role that you're uncertain of being able to do or moving across the world to Saudi, which you did. Tell us a little bit about those important milestones in your career where you decided to do things that maybe others weren't willing to do. I believe it was in 2005, you did move and took your whole family to Saudi when you became country manager. And what was that like? And looking back on risks, how how risks played into your career? Yeah, so I think what you have to do is be willing to do the jobs that are important that other people don't want to take on. So in that time period, like in 2005, this was kind of pre-U.S. unconventional boom. So if you were in the U.S. oil patch, the view was, hey, the U.S. oil business is on decline, not because of demand, but because we just didn't have enough resource here. Mm -hmm. So the view was, hey, if you're going to be someone in the oil and gas business, you better understand and be able to operate in those markets outside of the U.S. business. And at the time, Saudi was really dramatically increasing activity to try to increase their productive capacity. And I said, hey, this is a place that after is probably the most important place on the planet in terms of the, maybe West Texas and Saudi Arabia are two of the most important places on the planet in terms of oil production. So I felt like going there and getting to understand that market and the customers and the people and the culture would be not only fascinating, but would be a good long-term benefit. And to be perfectly clear, we lived in Bahrain and commuted to Saudi Arabia. It's like an hour-long drive between the two. So I think being willing to do things that others aren't and take jobs that others aren't that are important is really key advice. And when you take a leap like that, we had three young kids at the time. I think my girls were four, five, and six when we left. You have to have a partner who's willing to like take on that risk and lean into it and also be able to just accept a lot of uncertainty in that deal. So I was very blessed, both professionally and personally, to have the opportunity to do it and a wife and family that was supportive of it. And when you first got over there, what was your wife's first take on everything? And did she end up being immersed in the culture? Or just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think initially when we made the first trip over, she said, okay, that's nice to see. I'm not moving here, though. And we nevertheless, we ended up moving. I always say she kind of, she cried when we left. And then three years later, when he came back, she cried as well. She got very immersed in the culture, made a lot of friends, was participated at a local community organization to, to help the underprivileged people in Bahrain. And she loved it and embraced the culture for sure. We'd go back to Mark if the opportunity arised. I love hearing that. No, thank you for sharing that. And it's so great to hear also your partner's side and what she ended up doing and the opportunity she got as well for going with you to that location. So thank you for giving that insight. 
You know, we want to talk about something that's very prevalent today, which, you know, the younger generation, they really like to move up fast. They want roles within the next year. They're always looking for the next thing. And sometimes that cannot be very good and not be really great on maybe even your internal reputation. And so you kind of spoke about it when you spent 11 years working for Baker Hughes and you moved through six different job titles before becoming the VP of Western U.S. So in some points, you spent, you know, sometimes less than two years, one year in a role Mm -hmm. before going to the next one. You had mentioned that it kind of maybe held back some of the ways that people kind of felt about you in these different roles because you only spent so much time there due to the time frame before you got promoted again and kind of made mm-hmm. people question. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the negative side of moving so quickly versus staying in a role for maybe you know more than that one year time frame? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I um, Baker at the time, I think Schlumberger probably has a similar, I don't know if they still do it this way, but they had a habit of moving people rapidly between roles in order to expose them to different things and in order to bring that individual's perspective to different jobs, which does have some merit to it. I think the key is to give that individual long enough in that role to really make an impact, both to understand it and make an impact. And that's probably three or two, three years in, in any given job. And if you move quicker than that, it's probably, yeah, neither the organization or the individual is probably getting the most out of it. When I got back from Saudi, I think I did a job a year for like five or six years before I ultimately left Baker. And I think in some ways it was candidly, it was too much change too rapidly. Years later, I've gotten a lot from each one of those different experiences. So I'm blessed and thankful to Baker for the opportunity. But for sure, I don't think either the organization or my, probably myself got as much out of it as if we had done some fewer things over a slightly longer period of time. Mm-hmm. When you left Baker, like you mentioned at that point, there was a vision for what you wanted to do, right? And I think it happens to a lot of us in our careers where we have this goalpost from when we start and we say we want to be X. Some have high ambitions, some don't, let's say, and both are okay. Can you share a little bit about your own career as you were going through the different stages where maybe you think you're headed one way and you're going to be X and then maybe something happens or you have children or a life event and then you realize like, hey, that's not what's going to make me happy. I want to do this. I want to work for myself. You know, was there ever a pivotal moment where maybe you thought for many years you were working towards something and then that quickly changed and it brought you onto another path? Yeah, maybe it wasn't a single pivotal moment, but it definitely throughout my career at Baker, I was passionate about what we did. I wanted to have an impact. I wanted to do more within the company and grow within the company. And I was fortunate to have given that opportunity. I think as the last couple of years, I realized that what I wanted to do and what I think I was good at wasn't really well aligned with what you needed to be successful as a really high level leader in a place like a Baker Hughes. There's lots of different, without getting into all the different weeds, it just wasn't a good fit between myself and the company at that point. It was became relatively obvious towards the end that wasn't going to work out. But in fact, they, fortunately for me, the company said, hey, you should, they invited me to leave, which was probably the best thing for both. And at that point, I realized that, hey, I didn't want to go back and work for the next largest service company or something like that. I wanted to do something where you would have an opportunity to work with a smaller team, a smaller organization, and really help grow and build something. So that's when I spent about six months engaging with different private I'm looking at a bunch of different opportunities, um, trying to find the right fit. And that's when I met the guys that were at Intervale Capital, now Amberjack Capital, and they owned a business, Team Oil Tools. I became the CEO of Team. And then two years later, we combined Team to other businesses to create InnoVec. So it's more or less been a progression, in the, but in roughly the same role for the last eight years. And it's been everything that I had hoped in terms of the opportunity to build the team and try to build the culture in the organization that you want. So I've been extremely fortunate and blessed to have the opportunity. 
Yeah, let's kind of unpack that a little bit because you did leave Baker and then you went to work for private equity where you were advising them on oil and gas opportunities, which then led you to the opportunity where you became the CEO of Team Oil Tools. And that was in 2014, right after a downturn. So it was a little rocky before you even took that role. And not to mention, like, as far as your previous jobs, you've led teams and you've led people, but not in a CEO position. And we've heard from Mm -hmm. many CEOs that the biggest difference is that you have to be the visionary. You have to have a vision of where you want the company to go when you're sitting in that seat. Did you ever feel like imposter syndrome or kind of like, yes, I know I can lead people, but can I lead a company and can I lead it into the vision that I want it to go? And what was your first step in like building your team and making sure you had that support system to be successful? (laughs) That's a tricky one. That word and strategy are hard. Like They get thrown around a lot. I'm not sure I know exactly what they mean, but I think Mm -hmm. from early on, I had a pretty good sense of where I thought we could really grow and how I thought we could be successful. It is certainly a challenge to come into a new organization. And I started with team December 1st, 2014, which is like the first working day after the OPEC Thanksgiving kind of deal in 2014. So it was just at the beginning of the 2015-16 downturn when I started and having to live through that the first couple of years was tough. I mean, you know, intellectually that the downturn is not your fault. And the reason that the business is struggling is not your fault. But nevertheless, like some days you wake mm-hmm. up and you're like, oh my God, all was good before I got here. And now I got yeah. here. <laughs> business starts has started to decline in line with activity. But yeah, so you never, like any of us, you have self-reflection, you worry, you wonder if you're doing enough, if you're doing making the right decisions. That for sure is a, a thing that weighs on you, particularly a CEO, because so many of the decisions are yours to make and yours alone, so to speak. That certainly can weigh on your psyche a little bit. But again, we have been, just say, more successful than most, and I think pretty happy with how things have played out over the last eight years. I think the big thing I would say is you're always going to make some mistakes along that. And I can point back over the eight years, a lot of mistakes that we've made. And I think that's okay. You have to be willing to take some risk, make some decisions, and when they don't work out, pivot relatively quickly. So I think we've been pretty good on that, that when we have made decisions that were bad, we've done the best we can to back up and take a different decision so they have as little impact as possible. Because yeah, if you, you spend a lot of time worried about not making decisions or worried too much about the mistakes that you made along the way, and the reality is that's going to happen. You just have to respond to it quickly mm-hmm. and effectively. And now a little word from our sponsor, Technip FMC. Macy, you know what I appreciate about them as a sponsor? is their mission is directed towards a more inclusive and diverse workforce. One of the reasons why we started this podcast was to move the industry forward, and they back that belief. Their focus is creating a culture of inclusion that will attract, develop, and retain a more diverse, talented group and ensure their employees can always bring their authentic selves to work. Beyond the DNI, they're also big into technologies. They believe in change and innovation in everything they do. Their offerings range from individual products and services to fully integrated solutions with a single interface to ensure a seamless execution. Their core focus is on the energy transition, emerging materials, and digital industrialization. To find out more about their most popular technologies like iProduction, iComplete, eMission, and iEPCI, go to technipfmc.com. And now back to the show. Yeah, no, I think to your point is you're going to make mistakes along the way. That's normal. That's going to happen. But it's how you respond, what you learn out of it and how you pivot and how you pivot is so important because it needs to be quick. And especially in North America where decisions and customers need something yesterday. And so it's really nice that you mentioned the the agility. And I think with a smaller company, that's the power behind it. 
One thing that we want to talk about is branding, especially like you mentioned, it was two companies kind of coming together and you guys decided to rebrand it and call it Innovex and then kind of just redo everything put together, putting these two companies, which alone, two different cultures, two different ways of running businesses coming together. How did that work out at the beginning? And then, you know, branding now is like a fun term. Everybody's using it, social media, everybody's rebranding, but you did that before, let's say it was cool. How was that process? Yeah, that's another process fraught with uh, opportunity for errors. But and to be fair, we brought three businesses together. And then we, over the years, we've acquired another four or five different businesses that we brought into InnoVex. I think from a branding perspective, the way we treated it that first year is we somewhat left each of the individual brands standalone and InnoVex was not well known. We weren't talking much about that. And we started with T-Mobile Tools and InnoVex Company, Antelope Tools and InnoVex Company. And then over the course of a year, we gradually flipped that to where InnoVex was the lead name and each of the individual brands dissipated. Now, what you'll find today, you will still find people refer to T-Mobile Tools or Antelope or Isotech, which is one of the other businesses. So, And we've acquired a few businesses along the way that had strong brand recognition like QCI. We acquired the Logan Fishing product line. So some of those product names still stick. It's always probably going to be Logan Fishing Tools. But if you look at the name of the company, the emails, the brand of the business, I think it's important that you focus on one brand. It's gotten a little bit easier over the years. When we first started, nobody had any idea what InnoVex was. And I think six or seven years on, as we've grown, it's particularly in the US, it's a much more well-known name. So it's easier as you're adding businesses or growing the business to reinforce the singular brand of the company as InnoVex. But yeah, it takes time. Like I said, it's fraught with uh, errors. And again, that's one where you can look back and say, okay, we probably could have done this differently or that differently. But on the whole, it's been a pretty successful effort. I think to your point, you really have to own it when you do a rebrand like that. Like you have to own the name. And I remember when y'all did rebrand, I was telling Maciel, I was in completions at the time. And I remember we went to a cook-off and then there was Innovex. And I was like, who is Innovex? I was so confused. And then when they got explaining, oh, Team Oil Tools and like talking about all the companies that merged to create it. What I really loved is y'all really owned it. You owned it. You rebranded. You brought all this swag. Like it was just like you pushed it. And then eventually everybody caught on. So I think yeah, no, I think that's right. We had many days early on where people were like, we never heard of Innovex. Who are y'all? Why did y'all do this? But I think what's in, like people focus on from a branding perspective on the name or the colors, which are all fine and important. But I think what's most important through that is, hey, what do you want your brand to represent in the minds and hearts of your employees and your customers? And so we worked really hard over the years to focus on. We want part of the name is to say we're innovative, but we also want to do a great job executing on location with our customers. So we're trying to bring those two elements together where it's not just about showing up doing the same thing every day, but also bringing innovations to the market to help our customers be more efficient. And so that's kind of where the name came from. And that's what we want people to think about when they recognize Innovex is that, hey, we're constantly trying to um, trying to do a good, a great job every day to take care of our customers and bring some incremental innovation to it. And then I think the thing we've tried to layer in as of late, which we talked about a little bit already, is we want to be seen as a service company that really believes in what the industry does. So when people think about Innovex, they're like, hey, those are the guys that understand and appreciate that the energy oil and gas business is important and we're not walking away from it. We're taking the moral high ground that what we do is great for humanity. Yeah. And y'all are doing a really great job at that, which we'll get into that a little bit more in some of our ending questions. But I really wanted to bring up, y'all just announced yesterday or like later this week or this week that y'all have got a new board member, Angie Sadita. She is now on the board of directors for InnoVex. 
And one of your quotes was like, you were very excited to have Angie. Angie brings a different perspective on our business, particularly through the lens of the public financial market for mm-hmm. the full service. And you also mentioned that you've known her for a few years and you're very confident in her. Can you explain or can you give like your insight on what it really means to really have that diversity at the board level? Yeah. So we have, um, we're private equity backed by a company called Amberjack Capital, as I said earlier. And we historically have had a relatively simple governance system. One of the nice things about private equity is when you look at the ESG component, that G part is extremely important. And I think having the owners of the business highly aligned with management and the entire employee base is, is very important, which we've had all the way along. As our business grows, we're positioned a business that at some point through a variety of different ways that this could play out, sooner or later, we might have to access the public equity markets. And we wanted to bring someone onto the team who had lived that life, understood it. So when we're having these conversations about strategy and what we want to do next, we actually have somebody who has lived in that market for a long time and it can help us craft our message to investors mm. and think through on the business. And that was one key component. And then to have, bring someone who has a slightly different perspective on how the business is operating, how we should think about the different segments we're participating in, look for partnerships with other service companies. So bringing someone in that knew the industry really well, had really good connections across the senior leaders of the oilfield service industry was really important to us. And so Angie brought a lot of that. And fortunately, just relatively recently, I think within the last couple of years, had left her position at Goldman Sachs. And so it was a good opportunity for her where she was looking to do get more involved with the industry and a perfect opportunity for us. And we've known each other for probably over a decade. I think one of my stints, I was the investor relations guy for Baker. So I got to know a lot of these people and always really thought a lot of Angie. So when I saw that she was, when we started looking for someone like this, my mind immediately went to her as someone that could really help us. So yeah, we're very excited to have her come on. That's awesome. Yeah, we're looking forward to uh, seeing more of Angie. And it's great to see that diversity in oil and gas and a lot of companies are focusing on it. So it's really great to see that. We wanted to talk a little bit about the generational differences. I think there's three working generations now or, you know, four incoming. What is something that you as CEO think is important to stay relevant, let's say, in that future generation of folks coming into the industry? How do you ensure that Indivex is staying relevant in order of recruiting top talent for the yeah. industry? I, I, maybe, maybe this isn't a very satisfying answer, but I don't worry about it a lot, honestly. We brought in a lot of people. If you look at our management team, for example, we have folks, I mean, of a certain age, but we have a pretty wide age of folks on our team from different generations. And if you're going down to the field level, that's true as well. And we've had really good success bringing in younger talent from the field to sales, to operations. So it's not an area that I have particular concern around. I really spend a lot of time thinking about how do we do that? Maybe we're too simple in that perspective, but when we find good people, we put them to work, try to incentivize them the right way, give them the tools to be successful. And I think irrespective of their age, I think what's most important is what's in that person's heart and mind and how are they going to help make an impact on the business. And we've had very good success that way. I've been very impressed with the talent that we brought in that's of the younger generation. That's really refreshing to hear. Really glad to hear that you're able to continue to bring that into your organization and continue to grow it. So I think for everybody listening to, you know, maybe Innovex is a place that you should definitely look into given the culture that you have created and just the vision that has been around the company and the acquiring that you have done as well throughout the time that you've been CEO. To end, we really wanted to kind of focus back on that viral post that you did and kind of talk a little bit more about that. So in 2020, you wrote a post and like I mentioned, it did go completely viral. 
You had shared with everyone the stance that North Face had against oil and gas companies when they refused to fulfill an order you placed for your employees. You were trying to place an order to buy your employees a jacket for Christmas present as a nice gesture. Instead of fulfilling the order, they refused it. What surprised you the most about their response? And why was this such an important story to tell at a time when really, I think this was like the pivot of when companies really started to stand up against what we were doing and Patagonia wasn't very far behind them? Yeah. So I think what surprised me most is I knew Patagonia had this view. Actually, I didn't think North Face did. Of course, it always struck me as incredibly ironic that companies that rely on fossil fuels to make their products, to perform the activities that they celebrate, it's it's entirely 100% dependent on fossil fuels, that those folks would have such a negative view. And the industry always was annoying and obviously hypocritical. When they said they wouldn't make the jackets, one of the reasons that they gave us, or the reason they gave us, is that it didn't conform with their standards. And they pointed us to their standards, which included a reference to, well, we also wouldn't make jackets for companies that participate in alcohol, tobacco, pornography industries. And I thought, well, I mean, to compare what fossil fuels, I think this is a very common mistake people make is they frequently compare oil and gas to tobacco in particular. And I think they just couldn't be more different in the sense that tobacco is not something that is fundamental to human prosperity. Oil and gas has huge benefits on humanity. Yes, there are some negative consequences as with any industrial process, but what our opponents have a tendency to do is only talk about the negative impacts without talking about any of the positive and irreplaceable benefits that fossil fuels give to us today. Mm -hmm. And so I was just shocked to see us compared to industries that I'm not picking on those particular industries, but the fact that those are all optional things that if we got rid of tomorrow would not really impact lifespans mortality rates of children, the number of human beings living in extreme poverty, all these things that have gotten infinitely better over the last 200 years built on the foundation of oil and gas. None of these other industries have that kind of benefit to humanity. So I was shocked by that most. We did submit the letter. Originally, I wrote the letter because I wanted my employees to read it because I want my employees to understand that what we do is important. And I was shocked with how much traction that got. And I think it just resonated with people. The obvious hypocrisy and the fact that particularly as you during that time, during COVID, there was a big shift in many different ways to try to effectively suggest that we would rapidly be eliminating fossil fuels and that would be good for the world. And I think those of us in the industry recognize how fanciful that view is. And so I think it just caught a nerve with folks at a, just kind of the right time. And it was the best free marketing we've ever done to this day. Yeah. I was in Midland last week and <laughs> earlier this week, and it came up three or four times in random conversations with people. So it for sure has helped with the to our branding conversation earlier. Oh, no, I'm sure. And I have to say every single time I see one of somebody with the North Face jacket, or even I have old North Face jackets, your post like pops up in my mind. (laughs) I feel like the hypocrite if I'm wearing it to like go outside or something. I'm like, I need to like burn this thing. I really appreciate that. And we really... We can send you an energy strong patch to put over the North Face. Yes, I need one of those. We just really want to say thank you for the advocacy that you've done in the industry. And you continue to pursue to do that. And you have this upcoming event. Can you tell us about what you have going on and how people can get involved? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. We're organizing a fossil fueled celebration in Midland, Texas, April 18th. It'll be at the Horseshoe. We're doing a number of different things as part of that event. One will be an educational component, which we're working on a couple of different parts of that. The first thing we announced was Alex Epstein is going to come and do a talk. The the author of Fossil Future and the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels will come and do a talk. And I think he's probably the most articulate advocate for the industry, Mm -hmm. even though he has nothing to do with the industry. He really understands the unique benefit that we provide. So I think he does a great job making those arguments. We'll add a couple other things to that educational component that we'll talk about over the next week or two as they get a little bit more distilled. 
And then we're going to have a celebratory component where Aaron Watson, Texas country music legend, is going to come and perform a concert there at the Horseshoe, which would be awesome. And then lastly, we are raising funds. We're seeking sponsorships. We've had great uptake on the sponsorships so far from other service companies as well as other EMPs or as well as EMPs. And we're going to use profits from the event. We'll go to Oil Patch Kids, which is a charity there in the basin that supports underprivileged kids. So I expect that we'll be able to make a really strong contribution to Oil Patch Kids as a result of this event. That is absolutely incredible. Not to mention Aaron Watson. I remember him from my time in college. He used to come. I went to Sam Houston. He used to come and play and he would pack the house every time. So it's really amazing to hear that you even have him coming. I'm sure a lot of people are going to love to come out and listen to him. And what you're doing for the charity for the Old Patch Kids is incredible. We very much support and promote that. So we're really happy that you shared it with us and what y'all are doing. Thank you. And where can people find it? We can add it to you as well, but where can people... Yeah. So if you go to the InnoVex website, just Google InnoVex. It's the first thing that pops up on the screen right now is the concert. And it'll take you to a link with some more information on it. If you're interested in participating as a sponsor, you can contact me directly on LinkedIn. It's an easy way to do it or through the website. You can send us a note. Like I said, we've gotten great participation so far, which I think is really going to help get a lot of excitement, get a lot of people there, as well as make a really meaningful contribution to the Oil Patch Kids. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam. It's going to be great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. And thank you for giving all the great advice that you have provided during this episode. And really just what you've done for the industry, we really means a lot to us. So thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. And congratulations on what y'all have achieved with the podcast. Thank you. And so if you like this episode, please like, subscribe, leave us a comment. We love to hear from you. And don't forget to look at the show notes as we'll have all the information for the upcoming event. And so thank you all again for joining us.